Hello, everybody. Welcome to the State of Mind podcast, where we create space for conversations about mental health that change lives. By bringing you the stories underneath the slogans, we want people to learn that they are empowered by their experience, not inhibited. On today's episode, we have Katie Baldwin, who is a psychiatric mental health nurse working at Canada's largest children's hospital. Katie has been involved in youth mental health education in a variety of formats for many years, speaking to thousands of kids about personal experience, recovery and well-being, and what it means to take care of one's mental health and help bring about better mental health in our peers, our families and our communities. We discuss the current situation of youth mental health during the pandemic, and in particular, the rise in eating disorder inpatient admissions that has been recorded across all children's hospitals in Canada during the pandemic, and the various ways that our healthcare system tries to support young people with eating disorders, and also the process of being admitted to a mental health uh, hospital the care that young people receive while in the hospital and then as they're discharged and how they go out into their lives and try to continue practicing the things they've learned. So we get a pretty thorough understanding from Katie. She's a wonderful speaker and teacher. And I think if you are interested in youth mental health and in particular eating disorders, this will be a great episode for you to listen to. So without further ado, I bring you Katie Baldwin. Okay, hi Katie, thank you so much for doing this. Can you please just introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about you and, and your work and how you got here? Of course, um, so I'm Katie. Um, I am a registered nurse and I've been a registered nurse for almost nine years. Um, and my passion, I can't believe it's been nine years. Um, and my passion is, uh, in mental health. Um, and I've been a psychiatric nurse, uh, for those nine years, right out of school. Um, my first job was working with, and I still continue to work with individuals with eating disorders, um, and various mental health issues, um, that, uh, result them having to be hospitalized. Um, and I love it. It's great. Um, and I wouldn't change it for a thing. Um, I speak both with um, lived experience uh, and from my clinical side um, to high school students, to uh, workplaces, and I really enjoy it. I love spreading good messages, good vibes, and um, giving people some insight and knowledge into being able to conduct their life in a meaningful way, um, especially with all the chaos that has been brought our way, especially this year. <laughs> no kidding. And, and I forgive me if you already said it, but most of your work is like inpatient uh, care, I guess. Right. And so that's when people are admitted to a hospital and are, are they there against their will? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, or? Uh, yeah, so we have, I work with both eating disorder patients and patients um, who are admitted for various mental health concerns. So it can be from suicidal ideation, attempted suicide, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, 
depression. And um, so it, it can go both ways. There are times where, you know, young people do need to be admitted to hospital when they don't want to be admitted to hospital. Um, and, you know, if, if the doctors feel that they're at risk, then they need, uh, you know, an evaluation and support and coping for them to be able to be safe to go home. Um, it can happen. Yep. Um, but we try and work with individuals, young people voluntarily, um, with the eating disorder population, they are admitted for uh, what we call medical instability. So, Uh, Their eating disorder has become so severe that their body is having medical complications from be it restrictive eating, um, not having adequate nutrition um, for tends to be a prolonged period of time. So we see kids with severe bradycardia, um, which is low heart rates um, and low blood pressures, electrolyte imbalances, um, and more so recently, the, you know, the cases that we've been seeing have become or are more and more severe from, from what I saw eight, nine years ago. So uh, there definitely has been an evolution of the, the patient population that we see and the severity that we see. Right. And I think I must, I, I, I've discussed it on the podcast in the past, but the, there's sort of a growing combination of different factors that are likely contributing to the rise in youth mental health issues including social media and Mm -hmm. smartphones and perhaps and and i don't know what you think about this but this weird paradox that as life in some sense is getting better for people in Western societies and actually people all over the world, without a doubt. Uh, There's that. And then there's also this piece of this rising, I don't know, it's so strange. Um, I think young people, yeah. yeah, I think young people these days have so much pressure. When I look at what they have to deal with compared to what, you know, I had to deal with when I was in high school, Uh, or grade school, it's totally different. Like I didn't even have to think about, you know, how many likes I got on Instagram or how many followers I have on TikTok or Snapchat or whatever, (laughs) Uh whatever it is. You know, I had my first cell phone in grade nine and, you know, the games that we were playing on it were snake. It it just, the, the, how that's evolved (laughs) has like, and I just dated myself, but has evolved dramatically right yeah can I actually can I wait just stop you for one sec because I never thought about it until now and you when you said it my mind was like because I know the research suggests that kids are doing just as much extracurricular activities they're still working although they're actually working a little bit less but I never kind of put two and two together that we didn't have social media in when we were younger and so that's the that's where a lot of the added pressure comes from. Is that what you're kind of saying? It's, it's, it's the added pressure is, you know, it's huge. When you think about how many likes they, you know, you post a picture, you get a certain amount of likes. Well, you know, that's not enough likes or why didn't other people like it? Or why didn't this person who I actually wanted them to like it, didn't like it. And so 
you know, there's that added pressure of them having to, I don't know. Um, yeah, I guess like keep an image, keep up an image or, mm -hmm. you know, be connected. And, and a lot of kids seek valid. And I think I've talked about this before in some of my talks is that, you know, young people seek validation from when, you know, we, when we were younger, we used to seek validation from face-to-face -face contact with our friends, right? Like we right. used to yeah. seek, yeah. that's how we got validation from our parents, from interactions and sports teams and stuff like that. And now these young people have this added element of seeking validation through social media. And um, there's also with social media, there's a false reality with, uh, you know, how people's lives, their people are portraying their lives, right? So you know, I always say the, the picture that people post on Instagram, that's probably a photo that they've taken a thousand times before, right? It's not, whereas people say, well, my gosh, that person looks so good. That person is so beautiful and is so effortless and, and has this beautiful life. And it, it, we're comparing ourselves to stuff that maybe isn't even in the moment reality, right? And so we have set this bar that is, essentially unattainable and when we can't achieve what these kids are trying to achieve is then they you know I think it affects their confidence it affects their um um yeah confidence and you know self-esteem and yeah. they don't get that validation that they need and that they that they want so it complicates things it, it truly complicates things social media is there's a lot of amazing things and outreach that can happen on social media, but there's also a lot of, um, you know, negative implications of social media as well. Right. I mean, and I, yeah. What, yeah. Sorry. What were you going to say? No, I was going to say, I can't even imagine what high school students are going through now with social media and the technology. Like I can't, I, it's really hard. I try. Yeah. Um, I, even as an adult being, you know, I do have Instagram and I'd still feel that pressure. I can't imagine kids who are trying to develop these positive connections and relationships with people and how much pressure that puts on them. Eh, it's, it's very different times right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I guess I'd be curious to know how you know, what type of conversations you've had with young people about social media? Like, what are they? How well, do you see it influencing kids, them? Yeah. So a lot of kids or young people use social media and their phones as coping strategies. And there can be many things that are positive about using your phone. There's great apps out there that they can use. There's, you know, there's just, it's, there's some distraction um, but I find that young people, it, they can tend to become too attached to it. And so, you know, I always stress the importance of learning different coping. You know, a lot of kids will say, well, I use my phone to cope and, and that's okay, but we got to learn other ways we can cope as well. Right. Because there's going to be times where we don't have our cell phone or a cell phone dies, or, you know, I, I always use the example of, when I traveled to Southeast Asia, you know, my cell phone broke within the first 24 hours of being there. And that was a huge shock to me because I was like, I don't have this connection. I mean, you know, I was there with a couple friends, but 
I don't have this social media connection with people I want to communicate via social media. And that was like, that was really hard. It was really hard to get used to it. But with time, you start to learn other ways to, to make up for that loss and develop other ways of coping with communicating and interacting with, you know, other people, which are going to be valuable tools to have lifelong. Right. Mm -hmm. And do our, our youth allowed their phones when they're in the hospital? They are not. And that's, and yeah, they are not. Um, And part of that is getting them to, you know, work on developing those core coping strategies and distress tolerance and, um, you know, things that are going to keep them safe essentially um, for discharge. And we work with, we've got, you know, a substantial amount of resources and, and great people we work with to develop these connections with youth and um, help them develop, you know, coping strategies to reduce stress and problem solve and regulate themselves. Um, cause at the end of the day, there's, there's nothing formally given in schools, which I'm, I think needs to be there, um, to help kids learn how to, you know, regulate themselves and deal with life stress. Because at the end of the day, <laughs> there's always going to be life stress. And there's always going to be things that are going to, you know, cause young people to have anxiety and worries. And and that is normal. Um, But we need to equip them with things and tools that can help decrease that, you know, impact and allow them to kind of ride the wave that it will end and it will, you know, things will get better. I mean, look at COVID, right? I don't think we, any of us knew that it was going to get like this, um, and I, I wonder if in hindsight, if we had prepared young people with some positive avenues and coping skills in the beginning, what the impact of COVID-19 would be on them. Right. Can you, so in today. that, yeah, in that sense, I've heard, um, researchers, that I follow who've done a lot of work on the changing generational patterns say that COVID might actually help to bring some resiliency to young people that perhaps may not have had that opportunity because they're so overprotected. But that obviously is yet to be seen. Can you can you describe maybe a scenario where a young person you've worked with, talked to, whatnot, has um, are sort of processed the, oh, this is how I'm doing things now, or this is me suffering, so to speak. And, oh, I'm learning these other things. And oh, I'm now I'm actually doing those things and I feel way better. I mean, we don't see kids for very long, so it's not, a lot of the work is right, done in outpatient. Right. I mean, we do, um, crisis stabilization. So we prepare them for discharge to be able to go and, and utilize certain, you know, coping skills and, and, and techniques out in the community, because really that's where the hard work is, um, where you don't have professionals around you. Um, I think one of the positive, one of the things that I've seen kids be, and you were mentioning kids are becoming resilient and helping kids build resiliency because of COVID-19 and to be honest, 
the adaptability that young people have had with say virtual school, they've done an amazing job, these kids being able to adapt and um, kind of roll with what's being dealt in front of them and what they're given, right? Because virtual school is not easy. I mean, I, I love the fact that I can have now virtual meetings and not have to go into work and, and, you know, just for the sole purpose of having an hour meeting, which is great. Mm -hmm. And I think should continue post COVID, but schooling is huge. We build connections, we build relationships. We, you know, one, I had one kid who, who I asked, um, you know, what's the hardest thing about virtual school? And it's not having that you can, if you have a question, you can't just go up and ask your teacher. Right. So, you know, kids who might get frustrated when they don't have the answer to something or they're having difficulty problem solving a math question or uh, you know a difficult science question otherwise they would have been able to go up to their teacher and say hey can you walk me through this can you help me with this they don't have that ability so I had one young person say to me you know I would ask a question I'd have to wait an hour to get the response from the teacher and even for me, that caused anxiety because I'm like, you know, you're sitting there, you're trying to do your homework and you have an answer or you have a question and you're stuck and you can't move forward without that help from your teacher. Yet you don't, won't necessarily get that response or reply or immediate help from your teacher, which you otherwise might have if you were in school. But having said that, these kids are, are, I do agree. I, these kids have been able to adapt and, you know, even throughout the course of the pandemic, school has started, school has stopped, school has started, school has stopped. And so with, even with that uncertainty, kids have been able to really push through it and, um, are continuing to, you know, I I don't, I actually don't know how grades are doing in school right now with kids. If Mm -hmm. what the stats show, whether they're declining or, they're maintaining or getting better. Um, but you know, I do think with the uncertainty that these kids have been given, they have been able to be quite resilience, resilient with it. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree. And it doesn't help that God, they live in a, I think we all do in a, unfortunately hyper negative, obsessive, dramatic news cycle that's just so not helpful and just feeding us with fear it's just absolutely horrible and and i think the the adults often react to that and then of course that has an impact on young people in ways that are that i don't see many adults really honoring um I guess I'd be curious to ask you if you have ever had conversations with young people around that sort of, um, do they speak to this negative environment they live in or there's so much fear, everybody's kind of- With COVID specifically? Uh, maybe, maybe yes, COVID specifically, but also just in, in other in other things like, I assume a lot of kids that you've come across or worked with are have 
I guess, obviously this is a generalization, but I think a lot of people that have mental health difficulties um, have a sense that they don't have agency or they're always being told what to do. And so part of the, the symptoms are kind of this almost like anger towards not having agency over their choices. And then of course, when you're in care, being forced to be in mm -hmm. care, that also, that also intensifies that anger. Yeah. I mean, I think the majority of, so change, I always say change is hard. So change for anybody is hard being, you know, being discharged from hospital, being admitted to hospital, that change, it's a change in your norm. That is, is fearful. That is scary. That is uncertain. That is, you know, can promote a lot of different feelings in young individuals. You know, I, what I do find is that the initial shock of being told what to do and that anger that can come with it or the frustration mm -hmm. or sadness, sure, yeah. or, I mean, there's a lot of emotion that's wrapped up in yeah. that loss of control. Um, yeah. that does from what I can see, I mean, I can't, I don't know. And I always tell young people, I don't know what's going on in your head. I can try, but we always encourage <laughs> them to tell us how it's, it's right. <laughs> how they're feeling. And if they can, you know, describing and labeling emotions are hard for anybody, especially young people. Um, but, you know, I do find that after that initial shock or change in, in environment, being admitted to hospital discharge, I do see it get better. And maybe that's, that's just my observations. I mean, I don't, I don't know what it, I'd have to ask them specifically, um, right. but just from working with young individuals, I do see a shift, especially when they begin to trust. Trust is huge, right? When you're, especially when you're in an inpatient right. unit with strangers, you don't, you know, people you don't know, strangers to you away from your family. Um, that's huge. That is really scary uh, for some who've never been away from home before. Right. And so it's really building that trust. And once that, I find that once that trust is built, they begin to let their guard down and let us in to be able to help them the best that we can, um, yeah. and prepare them to be able to continue on with life and <laughs> live a, live right. a life where common in DBT is, you know, to help them develop, you know, find a life worth living, right? And being yeah. able to utilize their talents and and skills and be productive and great human beings. Enjoy yeah. life. Yeah. The yeah, I kind of asked you three questions at once there. So um so yeah, we were talking about the resiliency of, of the young people during everything going on, yeah. the fact that we're all being fed just a never ending incessant diet of negative news. Yep. And often young kids are the brunt of the adults in the world's inability to deal with the difficult situations. I think. Well, that's huge. So prior to COVID, yeah. you know, parents of these young individuals tend to be stable, right? Right. Um, and so you would have a, a child or young person who 
might not be able to regulate themselves or might not be able to cope with their daily life or surroundings, you know, school stress, life stress, things like that. But you would still somewhat have a foundation of the parent. And now with COVID, everyone is in chaos and, and we, you don't necessarily, I'm, I'm suspecting that the, the, what used to be the foundation is now rocked. So the parent that was the foundation right. and was be able to be that strong person to be able to support their young child or teen. Now they're, they're found now they're rocked, right? Whether it's job loss, whether it's, you know, care for a loved one who might be sick, um, all those added pressures of, you know, mm -hmm. if you have elderly mm -hmm. parents and not being able to go travel and see, say you have parents abroad and things like that, you know, adult stress worries, right? And that, I, I do think that that would trickle down to their young, to their child, right? And their ability to help their young child cope. Um, and just, Definitely, you're right. And yeah. being, you know, having to work from home and be, you know, parents these days are now having to be um, a parent, an employee from home, a school teacher, plus being able to manage their own stress and emotion dealing with a pandemic, right? So the amount of stress on people these days is huge. It's, I, I, I could not, and I, you know, praise all the parents out there for sticking through it and remembering that this will end this, we will get through this, um, which sometimes is hard to remind ourselves because it's been <laughs> no now doubt. over a year. No so, yeah. um, but I commend them for doing what they, you know, they've got three jobs and, you know, when they have a child who's not well and not coping well mentally and say might be hospitalized, that's, you know, something else that's really shook, you know, yeah. what their stability used to be. Yeah, definitely. The okay. I want to read you fr read from this news article. Um, experts say pandemic fueling apparent spike in eating disorders among adolescents, and that's this is from CTV News. I just want to ask you about this. So, I'll skim through it. These are sort of mentioning all the big hospitals across Canada are experiencing almost a fifty percent mm -hmm. increase in in mm -hmm. um, admissions, and while the number of referred outpatients is heading towards a 50 60% increase so there's a there's can you just distinguish between admissions and you kind of already did before but here okay compared to last year bartha says yearly admissions at her toronto hospital are expected to jump as much as 30% to 170 from 128 while the number of referred outpatients is heading toward a 50 to 60% increase with 245 cases versus last year's 154. So I guess those are projections based on what's happening already. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, just the, the process of an admission, yeah. a so stay and then an outpatient. Yeah. Yeah. So typically what happens is, um, you know, a young person could be, their family doctor could um, send in a referral to a program, an outpatient program to which they're, you know, monitored in weekly visits, bi-weekly visits, 
you know, every two weeks, I'm not too sure on how that process works, but their family doctor could put in a referral. Um, they're monitored and in, in the outpatient setting and may never see a hospitalization. Okay. Um, and so that's, that would not include an admission at all. Nope. So that, that would okay. not include okay. an admission. And okay. um, you do get um, family doctors who might put in a referral um, and say, listen, I have this kid who's, you know, medically unstable heart rate of 40 in the community. They have awake. it in here. Yeah. I think they have it in here, the heart rate. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. 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 45 um, beats per minute. Right. Yep. So um, they would generally need an, an inpatient admission. And so once okay. someone is admitted to hospital, there's a bunch of criteria that, you know, need to be met for discharge once discharged, they would go back into the, the outpatient setting. Got so what okay. that, what you've read to me, what that's saying is that, that you've got kids who are so severe that need an inpatient admission, and you've got kids who are, might not need an inpatient admission, but are having to deal with eating disorders and need that referral to specialized care in an outpatient setting. So the whole goal as an outpatient setting is to minimize hospitalization so they can get the help that's not required that they need right. for their eating disorder yeah. um, right. before the point of needing an admission. Because once an admission is required, it means that there's some serious medical complications from their eating disorder. So I think that's what that, from what you read, yeah. that's, I think that's what they were referring to. Yeah. Right on. Cool. Thanks. Okay. So. Then the next paragraph is, and maybe you can just help distinguish between these two, these things. The cases primarily involve restrictive eating, including anorexia nervosa and avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, mm -hmm. which is similar to anorexia, but does not involve stress over body shape mm -hmm. or size. So mm -hmm. just what's the difference between restrictive eating and anorexia nervosa. So the avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And oh, that's versus, the next one. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, I see. I'm, I'm confused to be honest how they yeah. write it all out. Yeah. Yeah. So there's anorexia nervosa restrictive type, which is what people, when you think of an eating disorder, what a lot of people think of. Right. Right. Um, so restricting calories, you know, you can just take like, is individuals. That the, is that the, sorry, is that the uh, professional way to say it as opposed to like starving yourself or that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it it maybe be, it's not starving yourself, I guess. It's right? not. It's, so it's not necessarily starving yourself, but th so they're not getting adequate nutrition. So you can see kit, you can see individuals who, you know, can take in a certain amount of calories. So we always think of nutrition in nutrition out. So taking in a certain amount of nutrition and um, using a certain amount of nutrition and what that net value is. Right. So right. you can have people take in, you know, 800 calories a day and they're also on the treadmill for two hours a day. Right. right. Um, and that is just with activity. You also have to think about the calories someone burns just by living and breathing. Um, but it ends up resulting in dramatic weight loss and resulting in bradycardia and other medical complications, which require hospitalization. There's also a lot, like, I think that article had said that there's body image concerns. So there are, you know, we talk, think about body dysmorphia, 
we think of, you know, usually there's a desired weight or a a phobic Mm -hmm. weight that they don't want to be at. There's a variety of different things that come along with anorexia nervosa, restrictive type. Then you get something called avoidant food, restrictive, avoidant, restrictive food, food intake intake disorder. disorder. It's always a tongue twister. Yeah. And you can think, so they end up, these young people end up having similar medical complications to someone who's restrictive or who's restricting their diet on purpose Uh um, by choosing how many calories to intake or how much, how many calories to expel. Um, They can have similar medical complications, but you always think of like the ultimate picky eater. So something or something has happened in their life that they've now become afraid to eat. And therefore the result of that is them restricting their diet, not on purpose, but because they're fearful. So things like, you know, I saw someone choke. Now I don't want to choke. I'm really scared of choking. I don't want to swallow. I'm really scared to swallow. And so usually there's like a marked in my experience working with individuals like this, there's, there's usually a marked traumatic event that has happened um, that creates this fear for this person to want to, or the ability to eat. Right. But the treatments is, I mean, we need to get there. We need them to, and then they also end up losing weight. So, uh, and can develop bradycardia and electrolyte imbalances, the same as someone who has ANR, anorexia nervosa restrictive type. But the treatment is essentially the same. The treatment in outpatient might be different. I'm that I can't speak to, but um, you know it's important that we get them nourished and that they're we get their organs working and strong and being able to um, get to a point where they can be discharged from hospital. Hmm. I, I then, before working yeah. before working with individuals with, you know, I had never even heard of this like. I never knew this was even possible. I mean, everything's mm. possible, but I had right. never heard, like growing up, I never knew of anybody who would have had something like ARFID or even ANR. Like I didn't, I think I knew a couple people, but, and also uh, my, my ideas are a little bit skewed now because that's all I work with. So I feel like, you know, the numbers are, are really high and they are, but in my own personal life in high school, looking back, I don't remember. I remember maybe two people that I knew that may have had an eating disorder that I could physically tell, right? Because there are people can have an yeah. eating disorder and you can't physically tell, right? So, right. The, well, I mean, and, and I think it's, it's hard to get a sense of the numbers because if you think, say, there's, I think there's, uh, 250,000 students in the TDSB, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then in Ontario, you know, how many, I don't know how many students, a million, let's say, probably more. But anyhow, when you think about that number versus 170 to 300 kids, it it's hard to grasp how Oh, there's a there's a research term for this where the numbers, when you look at facts, you assume it's not as bad as it is, or it's much worse than it is. But and then mm-hmm. I'm not saying this is not 
really bad or that it's i'm not making a judgment in that sense but i think we have a hard time until you are either have experienced it yourself or you're beside another person experiencing it and you witness the symptoms and the difficulty that mm -hmm. this person has it's really hard to to comprehend what's going on there um and and it's different for everyone right yeah. so there's okay. it, yeah. every every case is different um some have overarching themes i mean COVID has been a huge you know factor mm -hmm. What but call modifier yeah <laughs> they like COVID has had a huge impact but um yeah they're they're all they are they're they're all different and and i it's hard to say why one person has it and why another person doesn't but the the amount that happens in general like the the what do you call the um the prevalence is so like when you're thinking about how many kids are in the tdsb and then you think about how many yeah. kids what the stats are in the in that article it's like how many did you how many kids did you say were in the tdsb Two hundred and fifty thousand. yeah so you know that's not even that's a point something percent you know yeah um but again but that's the that, people that but that's what's reported right there's a lot of people with eating yes, disorders that right, can go right, unreported right, right? Yes, oftentimes definitely, definitely. it's we're seeing it when it's gotten to its worst, right? Where it requires, right, right, you know, inpatient right, hospitalization. Right. That there's, I, I feel like the numbers. No, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Numbers, no, that's such an important thing just to point out. Yeah. I feel like the numbers that are reported, I, I think the numbers are probably likely higher. Um, yes, I would agree with that. And yeah, that's such a great point. I'm very glad you, you mentioned that. Because I think even here it says um, a part where oh, I'm going to struggle to find it. Basically, mm. oh, here we go. Um, that could be because of delayed assessments. If some families mm -hmm. feared contracting COVID-19 by visiting mm. a hospital early in the pandemic, mm -hmm. she says. Meanwhile, anyway, go. it goes on. But that... Um, Underreporting, yeah, and and then the all the. I assume there's many many young people in some form of mental health care service that. For 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 no fault of their own, or perhaps the level of disclosure from the youth, there's lots of eating disorders going on in all kinds of places that are not identified. Well, and then, it's, of course, yeah. I mean, asking. I always say this, and I when I you know, would public speak, I would always say this, asking for help is not an easy thing because it's admitting that there's something wrong, right? That, yeah, yeah. and especially with eating disorders is that's your understanding that you're going to have to lose all control, right? With eating disorders, it's about control. A lot of it is controlling what you eat, how much you exercise, um, mm -hmm. control your body image, control or not body image, but control the way your body looks. Um, and so, acknowledging that you need help for this is really scary. And I can imagine, I mean, I, I've never had an eating disorder, but I can imagine how hard it is because you're having to now hand it over to professionals or your parents 
and give them the control. And that loss of control is really scary. And I say this to a lot of young people is I can't, I, I, I don't know what you're going through, but I can imagine that it is really, really scary because all the control that you have had and that has kept you almost like a, a safety blanket, that, that control yeah. that, you know, is gone, is gone when you ask for help because now professionals need to intervene. Now your parents need to intervene. And that is really scary. Yeah. And the thing, you know, what the hard thing with eating disorders, it's not like there's a medication that we could just give and your eating disorder is gone. Um, the medication is the nutrition and that is what is most fearful for these young people, right? So we're asking you to do things six times a day or do something six times a day. That is the most fearful thing for you. So, you know, imagine I just, I, I try and put myself in their shoes and I, it, I, I can imagine how hard that is and how scary it is. Yeah, absolutely. I saw something in reference to Dr. Katzman somewhere where she said, food is the medicine or something mm, along those mm -hmm. lines. And, and yeah, that's interesting to, I, I, I can relate in, in the addiction framing is what's so difficult about addiction. And I think eating disorders are very similar is that sense of control. Mm -hmm. And then the only way out is to, in some sense, surrender, let go of this need to be so controlling over everything. And it is so scary until you learn, I guess, that that is actually a form of strength and, mm -hmm. and agency and, and practicing that is really hard because our whole, and I would say most of our medical system is actually founded on, I don't want to say the illusion of control, but the balance between, we do have control over certain things, obviously, but then there's this whole other part of medicine that is actually just, nobody knows what the hell they're doing and they're, everyone's doing their best, right? But I think it's very paradoxical and hard for people to understand that there isn't always just a box to check and a pill to take or a procedure to undergo that heals us. Like similar to, mm -hmm. we often talk about you break an arm, you go to the hospital, you get a cast, you get sent home six weeks later, your arm's fine. But when it comes to mental health disorders, it's mm -hmm. certainly not like that. And I'm curious. Well, it's something that takes time, right? It's something that is. Yeah it's, it takes time. It is not, you know, with eating disorders, it's, you know, a mental health, it's a, you know, eating anorexia nervosa is, you know, a mental health. I'm pretty sure. It, I mean, I mean, in the DSM five, um, huh? that has medical complications, right? So it, it's, there's two realms, right. And we get, you know, there's a lot of people say, you know, you're going to, you could, one important aspect is making sure someone becomes weight restored and making sure someone becomes, um, you know, safe to leave hospital or, um, you know, at a, at a healthy weight, but there are, there's a lot of, um, mental health, um, 
comor- there could be a lot of comorbid mental health issues that come along with that. And that needs to be at- attended to as well, which is super important. And, you know, there's talk about when that is the most appropriate time for that to happen. You know, the uh-huh. brain needs to be nourished in order for that to happen. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, but it, it does, it's a process and it takes time and it's, it's, there aren't every family, every, every patient is different in, in how, how much they need and how, you know, how much support they need to get to them, get them to a point of discharge and in the outpatient setting. But it's also, you know, you're right. There isn't just a a checkbox. There isn't, there, there are some checkboxes that they need that need to happen for, for, for safety and for, for, you know, medical stability, but Mm -hmm. you know, every family and every patient is different. Right. So, you know, being able to respond to those changes and differences in, in families and patients is important. There's no cookie cutter. Yeah, no. Can you just, what are some of the skills that young, that I guess caregivers, people like yourself, doctors, Mm -hmm. nurses, et cetera, what are some of the things that you try to help in these acute states or even as young people learn to navigate out in the world and start healing from their eating disorders? Um, so, you know, skills that you can teach an individual with eating disorders who has an eating disorder versus other mental health issues can, um, be very similar. Um, you know, coping is huge. Distress tolerance is huge. Um, you know, getting, sorry, I want to interrupt you. Can you, yeah, just give an example of how a young person uh, without a skillful ability Mm -hmm. for stress tolerance, um, what that looks like, and then how, when they develop stress tolerance, what are some of the things they learn to do? And how does that impact their health? Yeah. I mean, in life, you know, we need coping, we need skills to be able to use, be it inpatient, outpatient, um, you know, to reduce life stress, problem solve, you know, regulate their emotions as, you know, young individuals, their emotions are all over the place. Um, So we need to be able to provide them with tools to be able to regulate or recognize different emotions, you know, like I said before, navigate stressful events, um, such as COVID or applying to university or, you know, um, taking that next meal or, you know, going to your outpatient clinic appointment, things like that. Right. And so we need to be able to give them those tools and skills. So there's many things that we can do, um, depending on, um, what, I mean, it's hard because, skills for one person might not be a good skill for another person yeah. but we, we talk so wait, a lot about can i ask you about, sorry yeah, just yeah. Uh, just so when so i because i i don't think i totally grasp this and i'm very curious if i'm somebody with an eating disorder mm-hmm. and i guess it's sort of obviously it's it's a thinking disorder too and then a behavioral mm-hmm. one but so what I, I am worried about is, is the, 
I guess the cognitive distortions for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. is it all really focused around my weight and my body and that kind of stuff? And so that I start to worry about that. Then I get anxious or I get sad or angry or whatever the emotional experience is. And then my unhealthy coping skill is a mechanism. Whatnot is to not eat. Is that kind of the cycle? Um, I mean, I think it's very different for other people, for different young people, but typically, uh -huh. you know, if I just think, kind of think of overarching themes of, of different individuals yeah. I've worked with, you know, bullied because of my weight or was okay. bullied because of the way I looked and, uh -huh. um, became more attentive to, or someone made a comment or I saw something, you know, online and I started to focus more on healthy eating. And then that healthy eating became more of restriction. So I cut more out and I, I saw weight loss and I got, you know, oh, you look so good or it looks and that, you know, kind of set fuel to the fire. And yeah, okay. And, and it gets to a point where they actually can't bring themselves out of it. Right. And so, right. um, and that's when it typically results in hospitalization. Um, and so, okay, no, that's great. That's helpful. And so the distress really is, or the. The distress is around know, the, what my next meal is, how many calories I'm eating, okay, how many okay, calories okay, I'm going to yeah, burn. Yeah, yeah, right, right. What and, that and, person's going to think of me and all those other kind of things. Like, yeah. And it, and it in, could in be also. Yeah. And there's also, there could be a lot of chaos in one's life and this is, you know, all they can control. And this is a sense of control. Right, right. Okay, okay. Um, I can't okay. control my parents' divorce. I can't control X, Y, and Z, but I can control my weight. Okay, cool. Okay. So that's the, the good example of the distress side, because I kind of interrupted you as you were describing the process of helping people develop different skills. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, okay. it, so then, yeah. I mean, there's a variety of different things. It depends on what kind of, at what point you, you know, coping skills are important prior to we get, before we get to a point of crisis. And then there's things sure, when we become sure. really dysregulated that we can use. And so there's a lot of skills, um, you know, there's a lot of cognitive behavioral skills. There's a lot of dialectical behavioral skills, mindfulness. Um, there's a couple, um, there's a really good workbook. I'm just pulling it up here. Um, oh, it's DBT workbook mm -hmm. for adolescents. Mm -hmm. And that one has a lot of great, you know, you know, talks about distress tolerance and skills and, and um, there's, you know, tip skills, there's wise mind accepts, there's, um, you know, self-soothing, I know a lot of, you know, some colleagues that I've worked with have developed things like a coping toolbox, right? So literally a toolbox, right. not an actual toolbox, but like a shoebox. And, yeah. you know, you put things in it that are going to help you in the moment, going to help you prior. If you start noticing that your anxiety is getting a little bit worse and that you, you want to intervene before it gets to a point of crisis. And so, you know, there's different soothing options, um, you know, with your various senses, there's, um, the tip skills really good. I can pull up what that. 
Well, yeah. Can have so how would so if I'm if I have an e eating disorder, mm -hmm. I, I think I find it very. <laughs> I guess I practice this so much, but I can. So I put myself in this person's shoes, and I am concerned about. So I like what you said to they. You get stuck in this frame of reference, almost this frame of reality that is so obsessive over weight and controlling this and controlling that. So the part of it, I guess, is distancing in some sense from that thought pattern. And then that is done through potentially breathing exercises or the senses or discussion or practice or at the like, end of the day, we need to get to yeah, Sorry, so at yeah, the end the of the day, we need, part, yeah. To, yeah, so at the end of the day, we need them to be able to complete nutrition, right? So right. however way we get them to complete the nutrition and provide them with tools and skills to be able to do that, um, uh -huh. to decrease, because the amount of anxiety these young people have in eating, which is an activity that for most of us, we don't think, you know, really think twice about, mm -hmm. but for these young people, you know, when they're asked being asked to eat six times a day, that's six times that their anxiety is just, you know, right. Okay. Through yeah. the roof. And so we, we want to mm -hmm. provide them with different skills and techniques to be able to get through that meal. Right. Okay. And I yes. tend to, you yes. know, say to yes. them, sometimes thoughts tend to spiral. So, oh my gosh, like I'm eating lunch and then I'm going to have another snack and then I'm going to have a dinner. And so I get them to pull back and think, let's focus at you know, minute by, by minute, hour by hour, let's not think about the next meal. Let's not think about the next snack. Let's think about, let's be in the moment right here, right now. Okay. And, yeah. you know, even, even sometimes where the amount of food in front of them can be really stressful, let's focus on one item. I'm going to put the other items just aside here. Let's focus on the one item. So different, you know, whether they have a, you know, um, squish ball or slime that they can hold that they can squeeze mm -hmm. anything for them to be able to get through that meal and snack because at the end of the day your nutrition is your medicine and we need you to complete it so right let's give right. them the skills let's give them the tools to be able to get through that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy it doesn't mean that afterwards you know i always say distraction is huge after a meal and a snack with eating disorder population because the amount of guilt and the anxiety that comes after I've completed a meal, not just during the meal. Right. To attend to. So holy smokes. Yeah. You know, distraction is, is, is important. I mean, and, and distraction can be, there's, you know, that distraction for one person might not be work for another person. So it's really about understanding that person as an individual and what might work for them and what wouldn't work for them. Right. Right. Can you wait? Can I stop you there? Because that's yeah. interesting. How do you the difference between distraction and avoidance? Like, what's the how do you see that? Well, I would say avo like avoidance. Would you not say avoidance usually comes before? Before being distracted? No. So like avoid like, you know, you're not let's just say oh. an eating disorder population. So distraction afterwards it's you've already completed what's difficult for you yeah. right and, and so then we you wanted... mentioned the guilt and the all mm -hmm. that stuff yeah so it's 
depends. They're not necessarily at a point cognitively to be able to break down and discuss about the guilt and the, and those okay. feelings. Okay. Right. Got so it. Got it. we yeah, really yeah, just yeah, want to yeah. get them to a point where, uh, and it's not to say those things aren't going to be addressed ever, but right, in the moment right. when they're, their anxiety is so high and they're almost like it could be panic. Um, yes. You know, our goal isn't to break down why you're feeling like this. Our goal is to get <laughs> okay. you. Yeah. You know, no, that's helpful. To, yeah. To get through because when you think about anxiety, like in CBT, you think about when, you know, even personally, when I've done CBT in your mind, you think your anxiety can get to a level of thousand in reality, it's not going to get to a level of thousand. Yes. yes. You know, it will be uncomfortable for, for a while you sit with it and in time it will go, go down. I'm not saying it will go away, but it, uh-huh. that anxiety will come down to maybe, you know, a level five from a level nine um, to a point where you're able to maybe discuss things or talk about things or, or right, debrief. Right, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Usually in the inpatient yeah, that, setting, that's, yeah. it's hard because yeah. cognitively it, a young person might not be ready to do that. Um, yes, and I yes, can't speak yes. to outpatient settings, but, um, sure. yeah, it's yeah, I about, guess my, sorry. And it's not necessarily giving them coping skills after the fact isn't necessarily them avoiding their feelings, right? right? It's right, being able to right. them to be, to tolerate that discomfort and distress. Right. Yeah. I guess I, my thought was, and you answered it by the idea that when they're in acute states and we really just trying to get food in their bodies, yeah, the brain is not really online or the prefrontal cortex is not so much online ready to engage and why they're mm-hmm. feeling guilty and, and et cetera. But I was thinking in terms of avoidance and we all kind of do it, but yet even avoiding a thought is a form of avoidance. You know what I mean? And so even avoiding the distress of having just eaten is a form of avoidance. And But as you mentioned, that actually is probably protective or helpful in that situation where they just need to get through it so they can kind of move on, I guess. Yeah. You know, every individual is different. So, you know, why someone does something might be different for another person. Right. So it's really, for us, it's really understanding that individual as a, as yeah an individual, right? Cause everybody's different and, and their reasonings behind certain things might be different. But, um, I think I find in my practice is really getting to know the individual and building that relationship because then you're able to, um, like I said, build that trust for them to be able to talk to you about really w- yeah. what they're feeling and, and the thoughts that they're going through. Right? if they don't trust you, they're not going to talk to you about it. Right. Totally. Yeah. And some won't, won't talk to you. Like, even if they trust you, they, they might not be ready to talk to you about it. Right. But it's, it's still trying Mm -hmm. to develop, develop that rapport and relationship so that, because one thing I tell young people all the time is that weight that you have on your shoulder of trying to deal with it on your own is I can't even imagine like that is huge. And 
a lot of young people don't, you know, maybe don't want to burden their parents or don't want, uh, or are scared to talk about it. You know, yes. Talking about things is fearful and is scary, right? Because at the end yeah, of the day, yeah, you're admitting totally. that I yeah. need help and there's something wrong, but you know, young people feel that they need to do it on their own and they do not need to do it on their own. And, you know, I always use the, the pop can analogy, right? So every time you don't talk to someone about something that's bothering you, you know, it's like shaking the pop can. And then what happens when the carbonation in the pop can gets too, you know, it's too yeah. pressurized, you end up exploding, right? So, yeah. and then we end up in a crisis situation. And so teaching young individuals to be able to talk to, to parents or a trusted family member or a teacher or anybody who might be able to provide them with some guidance, you know, can help alleviate some of that pressure. Um, Cause at the end of the day, you don't need to go through it alone. And, and there's lots of people that are willing to help and support you through it. Yeah. That's interesting. You mentioned that because part of, I remember reading in the article was it was mentioned that because kids don't have teachers and coaches mm -hmm. and other potentially role models or, or trusted path, yeah. others yeah in their lives that's definitely adding to the difficulties yeah, I can see that. of that yeah. yeah definitely I think um what were you saying about oh the boss I remember learning about anger management in my recovery and one of the one of the I don't know what it is behavior types was bottle and blast and that was like stuff 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 mm -hmm. until explode but yeah yeah i mean nice it's something i have to context. it's something i have to remind myself every day to do right because you know it's it's so much easier just to kind of put it in the back burner or brush it underneath the carpet and not think about it yeah um and then you know one day you kind of are in a point where you're gonna explode and you're like oh like it's been a month or it's been, you know, two months since I've actually really talked to anybody about what's going on with me. Right. You know, this is, this might be a reason why I feel like I'm going to explode at this point. Yeah. So, I mean, okay. it's something, even as clinicians, you got to take care of yourselves and burnout is huge right now. And amongst clinicians and, and doctors and nurses and anybody who works in a hospital, um, parents, you know, who are now having to work three jobs, kids, everybody. I mean, it's a rough time yeah, right now, yeah, it but is, it you is. know, we do need to remind ourselves that it will end. It will, it, we will get through it. I tell myself that every day we, <laughs> we have to. Actually. And I'm glad you just said that because I want to make, make it a point, although I'm not kind of one of these people not to say they're bad, but, um, you are one of the people on the front lines. And so I just, I should acknowledge that and thank you for your thank service you. to all of us. Yeah, it's important, I think. And man, yeah, it must be so tense. I don't know if tense is the right word, but you have that added angst, I guess, that's um, I mean, we talk going on. We, and yeah, you know, do you talk, talk with your colleagues so about it and stuff? Oh, how, 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 yeah, how of do course. you guys I mean, handle? we, they're, they're my second family, right? We call it, you know, yeah. my work family and, and, you know, we rely on each other to get through every single day being at work. Mm -hmm. You know, I've talked about this with a lot of my colleagues is with COVID-19 and the general public, 
isolation and even with us, isolation has, you know, increased not being able to see your family, not being able to see your friends, but one of the, I guess you call it a silver lining, um, of working (laughs) in a hospital is, and, and every day seeing your, your work family and your crew and your team is we might, our isolation might not be as, as, you know, we, we get that social aspect. We, you know, we see each other, we, you know, we don't hug each other. We don't, aren't close to each other. right? Right. But even just being in the same room with someone is, is, is impactful, right? It's being yes. able to have that connection yes. and conver- human face-to-face conversation with someone. Uh, and so we are grateful every single day that we've been able to go in and see our work family and work together, keep our spirits, you know, up and, <laughs> and remind ourselves that this will get better. And, you right. know, that the, the way of life in a hospital right now has, has, um, you know, wearing a mask for a 12 hour shift took some time to get used to. Um, but now (laughs) it's just second nature, to be honest. Um, and COVID precautions and things like that, you know, hospitals have been doing a a great job and, and so we're now, I mean, it's almost, almost a year in or close to a year in. So it's taken, you know, it takes time to get used to things, but we're getting used to it. And, um, but yeah, the isolation part, we're grateful for having each other there every single day. Yeah. That's a silver lining, as you say. (laughs) And, and I've read a couple articles where or seen on the news where COVID vaccine was, you know, a dream a year ago, thinking about getting a COVID vaccine and being able to get COVID vaccines now is, you know, a, a sigh of relief because it's, it seemed like a goal that was so far and now is, is, is here. And, you know, everybody has their own ideas and opinions on vaccines, but, you know, uh, no, it's an absolute make, miracle. Yeah. 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 No. So yeah. Us, us frontline workers are starting to get it. And so that's, yeah. Yeah, I know it's progress. It I, what step at a time? Yeah. Yeah. Cause they did say, I remember in the beginning, the, I guess the medical professionals or whoever were saying, if we can get it in 18 months, that would be mm-hmm. a world record basically. Mm-hmm. And here we are. Um, yeah. I amazing. Think, what did they say yesterday? We had, they've given out over 500,000 vaccines and I think over 200,000 people fully vaccinated. In Canada or Ontario? In Ontario. Okay. I think I could be wrong. Uh-huh. I don't know. It. Yeah. I know America is doing a way better job than we are as as hard as that is to believe. <laughs> but I think everyone as you said before I think people are doing the best they can. You alluded to this in some sense. I think this is also chaotic and weird for everybody. And I have to remind myself that it's so easy to just say, oh, we should have done this. We should have done that. We, you know, but no, it's actually amazing that we're here and have navigated as well as we have done. 
And yeah, of I course mean, you can be critical. Sorry. Yeah. You can be critical and you can point out where we can improve, but I think it's super helpful going back to mental health to do your best to have that positive or at least yeah. forward looking perspective. Yeah. So as of yet, I think yesterday was the 18th. Am I right? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, total doses administered was, um, just over 500,000 and, um, just over 200,000 people are fully vaccinated. So look, that's wow. better than we were, you know, a month and a half ago. Right. So we're getting there. We are. And all, we're, we, we'd all curious. like it to be faster, but, but we're getting there. <laughs> we would, where did you read that from? So I actually on social media, um, okay. on there's a, I coworker of mine was actually following it but anyway it was it's called Ontario COVID Tracker it's um okay wicked there you go that's what I was looking for yeah I'm and yeah. so every day they usually post um what the numbers are how many infections right. how many resolved how many deaths how many tests positivity rate and um then they actually have a graph as like when the stay-at-home order was initiated and the numbers dropping oh. and then they highlight when the provincial reopening started and so they'll continue the graph trend which is kind of interesting to see because um, i'm yeah. a very maybe that's the nursing side of me i'm a very like i do like to see numbers and stats so uh-huh uh-huh um did you i know we're kind of getting off the cuff here but they i saw a read recently where it said global cases of covid have i'm have been cut in half over the past few months and nobody knows why yeah, so, uh, and experts are looking for explanations did you hear that so covid numbers meaning in, so covid infections have cut in half yes. over the last how long and nobody um doesn't say just the the headline which was in the globe it was in all kinds of newspapers uh, basically, global COVID-19 cases have dropped by half, and experts are looking for explanations as to why. Well, I can't speak globally, when you, but when you think of, so the spike, if I'm looking at this graph on this Ontario COVID tracker, so if you look at this graph. It's taking forever to load on my screen, sorry. <laughs> so this graph, January 11th, our numbers were at... So active infections were over 30,000. And then you look at the stay at home, when the stay at home order, they started to come down a little bit. You're also getting post Christmas and post New Year's. And then you're seeing it go down slightly and then the stay at home order. And it's like, it actually look, looks like a, a mountain. So since the stay at home order, it has gone down quite substantially. Obviously we know that with the numbers that are published that it has gone. I mean, the stay at home order, the schools weren't in, people weren't, you know, they shut down the yeah. province completely essentially. Yeah. Um. So there's a lot of reasons why I, you know, numbers have gone down. I think, I wonder about schools. I, I also was hearing on the radio, on the news last night that they're going to start doing saliva tests in schools for asymptomatic students. Wow. Hmm. 
anyway, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of reasons why numbers have gone down. I think, I think there's, yeah. Well, the, there's herd immunity too, which, which is like a swear word almost right now. Nobody's allowed to say mm-hmm. that, but experts, I know I read somebody from the CDC talking about it. Um, anyway, who knows? It's good news though. No Look, doubt. I, we'll do this. We'll do this in, again. And we'll, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll, Either we'll be Let's looking see. at a graph that's gone back up or we're going to look at a graph that's gone back down. Right, right. So I'm uh, hoping that it's a graph that's gone down. Me too, me too. And we'll be able okay. to look back at this in a year and or two years, whatever it ends up being yeah. out of our control really in the end. Totally, totally. Radical acceptance. Except <laughs> what you cannot change. I have a book called Radical Acceptance. Oh no, sorry, Radical Responsibility. It's called similar. So one of the similar one of the idea. things I did want to mention is that yes, um, you know, a bunch of colleagues and I were actually going through some of these manuals and workbooks, and I actually uh-huh. started to read this one workbook that might be good for. Um, you know, I had mentioned that we don't formally teach kids about coping and distress tolerance in schools. However, there is a text or there is a manual that's called DBT skills in schools, skills training for emotional problem solving for adolescents. And it's, yeah, it's a, I've started to, to read it. It seems great has lesson looks like lesson plans and, 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 you know, important about emotional regulation and interpersonal Uh. effectiveness and mindfulness and distress tolerance. Um, I have that book. You have it? Yeah. Uh, James J. Mazza Mazza. and Elizabeth. Yeah, Yeah, I have it. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you read it? No, (laughs) I haven't. No. (laughs) One that we use oftentimes in the, um, in our work is DBT Uh skills manual for adolescents. Right. Okay. And this one's for schools. I do have a couple I have a bunch of these books, sort of workbooks. So this is on skills my, training uh, handouts Kindle. for DBT, skills manual for adolescents by Jill H. Rathis Miller. So that's uh, one that we th- often use. Awesome. Yeah, I think the one thing that people often forget is just there's. I I have this quote up on my wall. Every we have what does it say? We all have the ingredients, but no recipe. And I think the recipe that is missing so much right now is just to practice, just to actually do it, to take out the piece of paper and go through the questions and answer. Well, and oftentimes that's scary, right? And it's, it's, we tend to avoid because we avoid doing things because we're worried about the anxiety it might cause, right? And so it's like a safety behavior, right? So we don't want to deal with the, the, we're avoiding the anxiety that you know, working on some of this stuff might cause. Yeah. In a, the long run, it makes it ten times worse. There's <laughs> totally. a um, in this for schools. There's some great. Let me just pull it up here. Um, That's the one we were just talking about. I think it's in like this one. Big, but it, uh, no, it's not this one. I think it's the one, the DBT skills manual for adolescents. So there's, um, here we go. So DBT assumptions. So for people who don't know what DBT is, it's dialectical behavioral therapy. So it's um, 
these are assumptions that we should assume about an individual is that people are doing the best that they can. People want to improve. People need to do better, try harder and be more motivated to change. People may not have caused all their own problems and they have to solve them anyway. Uh, The lives of emotionally distressed teenagers and their families are painful as they are currently being lived. Teens and families must learn and practice new behaviors in all the different situations of their lives, i.e. school, work, neighborhood. There is no absolute truth and teens and their families cannot fail at DBT. So a lot of people are reluctant to try things because they're worried about failing and there is, you cannot fail, right? And like you had said, it's practice. Yeah. You know, it really is practice. It's about becoming more comfortable with being uncomfortable. (laughs) And that's really scary. Yeah. Even for me, it's really uncomfortable. So me too, Um, for sure. I think, I think no matter who you are, it's yeah. Yeah. We're all human. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I love that you just read through that stuff too. That was really nice. Um, Anything else you want to share before we say goodbye? Um, I mean, you know, I just like to reinforce that there's help out there. We have to be kind to ourselves, take care of ourselves. Um, and this will end. It's a really challenging time right now for everybody. And we have to be kind to each other and uh, we will get through it we will get through it and we will one day look back on this and you know maybe not laugh but be able to reflect on how amazing we truly are that we you know got through it and worked as a team and a society and community to be able to to help each other get through it we need each other we can't do it alone we do we do no doubt this was a great social interaction minus the the more than six feet apart yep yeah city apart but thank you so much for your time thank you for having me anytime mike okay i i i admire your constant never ending support it is wonderful and i would not be where i am without a lot of that so thank you you're welcome cool okay katie take care okay bye mike (laughs) okay bye till next time bye bye